Now we're going to start. This Genesis 38 is one of the filthiest um, passages in the whole of the Bible, I think. It's basically a story that goes like this. Lust, sex, death, weird family planning, more sex, more death, uh, widows, promises made that are unfulfilled, prostitution, more sex. Well, actually, that's incest, really. Get to that in a moment. More broken promises, blackmail, uh, threats of extreme violence and death. Get a bit of guilt, some remorse, some repentance, some kind of restoration, some substitution, some redemption, and ultimately Jesus. It's going to be a fun 35 minutes or so. And uh, if you're a guest here thinking, or even if you're a guest here thinking, why on earth are we talking about this? Well, firstly, it's in the Bible. (laughs) All right, and we don't really want to just ignore the bits that we don't like. Secondly, it's really quite important that we learn how to handle the messy and the icky bits of the Bible. Otherwise, we end up just ignoring them and you're not really sure why they're there and you get a bit embarrassed by them when somebody says, what about this? And more importantly than all of that is that the characters in this particular story find themselves in the family tree of Jesus. If you've been coming the last few weeks, you'd know that we're in this series, The Scandal of Grace, based in Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses, which is the genealogy of Christ, the family tree. And the whole kind of theme, if you like, is that the family Jesus came from, we nicked this off a quote, off a tweet, we've misquoted this guy's tweet the last few weeks, so it's now our tweet, our quote. The family that Jesus came from is a picture of the family that he came for. And to be honest with you, the family Jesus came from is pretty messed up. And it stretches all the way back to Abraham, who we looked at last week. God promises to Abraham that from his seed, from this family, would come eventually a redeemer for the hope of the world. That basically his family carries the hope of the world on its shoulders. That from him, someone would come one day who would restore and and sort out all the mess and the brokenness in the world. And basically, that family take it in turns to mess things up. That's essentially how their family tree goes. And today, in Genesis 38, we hit a new low, one of the weirder, slightly grosser, slightly uncomfortable. I read this out loud to my wife, and she said, you cannot say that. I said, it says it in the Bible, so I'm going to say it. And she said, do not paraphrase it on any circumstances. (laughs) Good news is I don't have to, because it's all weird in here. Now, if I go red, it's because the lights are hot. That's all it is. 38, Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Judah is Abraham's great-grandson. It's a complicated family tree of Abraham because basically all the men had sex with lots of different women. Not necessarily their wives, but second wives and other wives and non-wives and slave girls and their slave girls and their wives' slave girls. And it always a little bit messy. Uh, Abraham has a bunch of kids with uh, his slave girl Hagar and then his other wife Keturah. And then he has one kid with his wife Sarah, has Isaac. And Isaac marries Rebekah and they have Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is Judah's dad. All right, And Judah is number four in the long line of brothers. Jacob, Jacob and sons. That one. A remarkable family in anyone's book. I think the next line is something along the line. Reuben was the oldest. and I don't know the rest of it. I do really, but I'm not going to sing it because I wouldn't want you to think I was a closet fan of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. So Jacob has two wives. Rachel, who's the, this is important, we'll see why later. Rachel is the younger one who he really loves. And Leah is the older one who he doesn't really love. 
And he has kids with both of them, but he also has kids with each of his wife's servant girls. So Christmas was a little bit complicated in their house. And Judah is basically son number four from Leah, the older, least favored wife. Rachel has Joseph, the Technicolor Dreamcoat boy. And uh, Benjamin, who's also important, and we'll see later on. Verse two, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. <laughs> like, straight up. What are you going to call him? Uh, okay, that'll do. <laughs> wow. Verse 4. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Okay, we're getting better. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Right, just so you know, what's, remind, catch up what's going on here. This is Judah. Comes from the family line of Abraham. He knows the promises Lamb with him. He knows what God's spoken to the family. There's no way he doesn't. And he doesn't marry someone from within the tribe. He marries someone, we're not even told a name, a foreigner, a Canaanite. And he has three sons. Verse six. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what he did, but he did something sinful, something stupid, something wicked, probably all three, and the Lord kills him. Sin serious. Then Judah said to Onan, brother number two, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, this was a Levite marriage tradition. If the one, one person died, it was kind of a responsibility of the brother to take on his wife and have kids, which wouldn't be his kids, they'd be the dead one's kids, okay? And uh, he doesn't really fancy this and he takes some steps to avoid getting, getting her pregnant Verse 9, but Onan knew that this offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Wow. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, son number one and son number two are dead, but I have a third son. Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So son number one dies. Son number two has a responsibility, dies. There's a third son, so there's a responsibility there. And uh, Judah says, you can have him, but he's still a kid at the moment, so hang around a little bit, and you can have him as your th third husband soon. I don't know what you're thinking if you're Tamar, but I'm probably thinking, I ain't so sure I want this. I've had one, he's dead, and the second one, he's dead. I ain't so sure I'm going on for that. So anyway, we carry on in the story. In the course of time, we reckon it's about five years later, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enun, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So, Judah promises number th son number three and goes back on the promise. He doesn't do what he says he's going to do. So Tamar hatches a plan to get what's rightfully hers. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. 
So she hatches this plan to get what's hers, which is basically to dress up as a prostitute in order to trick Judah what's going on. Now, we need to be careful not to too quickly judge Tamar in this situation. We read it through very modern lenses and think, well, how, what, whoa, that is not good. You've got to understand in a patriarchal culture that lived in, she was in a very, very, very vulnerable position. She no longer had a husband to protect her. She no longer had inheritance. She didn't have any sons. She didn't have any land. She had no real hope. She was very, very vulnerable, and so she did what it took to get what was rightfully hers. So she dresses up as a prostitute. Judah's walking along. He turned to her, verse 16, at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. That's all right then. <laughs> and she said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He's not even paying for this. He's paying for it on credit. <laughs> I have nothing, but I promise I'll send you a goat. Now, because she's smarter than he is, she's like, well, okay, you need to prove this. How many times do we hear that, ladies? Smarter women than their men who uh, maneuver things, shall we say, to get what is rightfully theirs. And he answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who has an him in the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow. She, he is angry. Angry that she's committed adultery, immorality actually. Angry that she's pregnant to the point of being burned. Now the normal punishment was stoning to death. It wasn't being burned. Burn was reserved for the most heinous of crimes. That's how angry he is with her. He is angry that someone should be involved in immorality. Like he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And he wants her dead. That's how outrageous he is. That's how angry he is. And then Tamar pulls the ace card out from her sleeve, verse 25, as she was being brought out, so this is very public now, being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Basically, she tricked him earlier. It's essentially like giving your passport, your wallet, and your house keys. Something that's going to prove that it's definitely you, beyond any reasonable doubt, that's who it was. Then Judah... In that moment, suddenly faced with his guilt and his shame, publicly in front of everyone else, Judah confesses that the game is up and he owns his guilt. Verse 26, and Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. 
When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she were in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. If you're a midwife here, I'd love to know if you've ever done this before. <laughs> all, all, all sorts of symbolism thing we could look at in a moment, but we probably won't have time to get into. And ultimately, through all of this mess, Perez and Zerah are born. <laughs> How messy is this? I mean, like, seriously, I have so many questions. Not least, can you imagine being Perez and Zerah growing up? Hey, mom, dad, how do you two fall in love? <laughs> well, actually, son, um, I propositioned your mom at the side of the road because I thought she was a pregnant, because I thought she was a prostitute, and I'm not just your dad, I'm also your granddad. Surprise! I mean, can you... Just, just for a moment, allow the messiness of this to get in to your head. How messed up is Judah? Like... Seriously, how bad does your reputation have to be? How bad does your reputation have to precede you that Tamar knows that the best way to get this guy to give away one is literally just to dress up as a prostitute and stand by the side of the road? No need to use alcohol, no need to trick him, no need to proposition him. Just dress up as a prostitute, stand by the side of the road, and that's how bad his reputation is that he won't be able to resist it and help himself, and that's what will happen. Like, how bad does your reputation have to be that it doesn't involve any more trickery than that? That's how messed up Judah is. How much of a hypocrite do you have to be in order to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want? I mean, like, literally, the story's walking up the road and he went, prostitute, sex. Whenever he wants, whoever he wants. How much of a hypocrite do you have to be to have that attitude to sex? And then when Tamar turns out she's had sex, say, kill her. Like, how, what's going on in your head of the double standards of that? Judah's a mess. He's a scandal. His story's a story of disgrace. And yet, counterintuitively, it's also a story of grace. How do we know it's a story of grace? How do we know? Why is this here? Well, listen, remember a couple of weeks ago when I said, we read the Old Testament, not morally, but theologically. We read this morally, and Judah, he's a shocker. And Tamar, to be honest with you, she's not exactly a poster girl for morality either. But we don't read the Bible morally, we read the Bible theologically. And we reading this Old Testament story theologically means reading this story in the context of the much bigger story of the whole of Scripture. Because we know how this story works itself out in the end. We read the whole book of Genesis knowing who this guy turns out to be in the end. We've heard his name before. This is the name. We've even sung his name today. Our God is a lion, a lion of Judah, roaring with power and fighting our battle. You read this morally and think, this is the guy we just sang? (laughs) I think I'll miss those words next time out. I don't want that. We don't read it morally. We read it theologically, and we know that Judah is the father of Perez, who became the father of Hezron, who became the father of Ran, who became the father of the father of the father of the father of, ultimately, the father of Jesus. We know, because we read the whole of the Old Testament, that in the end, Judah would be the only tribe left of all the 12 after King David. We know that in the end, ultimately, the land would be called Judea because he was the only one left standing. We know that in the end, ultimately, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And we know that Tamar gets included in the lineage of Christ. 
Christ. And we know that in the end, the world is going to be transformed by this lion of the tribe of Judah. And we know that in the end of all of history, because we've read right through to the other end, that one day a great number, a great multitude from every tribe and every tongue will gather around the throne and worship the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know this story works out like that. This is a story of God's grace. And we also read Genesis chapter 38 in the context of what's around it. 38 comes right after 37 and right before 39. Deeply profound insight this morning, I know. But actually, it really matters. Because if you just flick forward and flick back, you see that this shocking story sits right in the place of a really quite different story of Joseph. Chapter 37 is telling the story of Joseph, who is a really good guy. And chapter 38 is telling the story of Judah. And the whole point is to contrast the two. Joseph, hero of the faith, on the whole, moral, upright, a real good, godly guy. Judah, stinking mess of a man. And we're reading this passage knowing that the blessing of God is carried through this whole family line, Abraham's family line. And so for us, the way we read it, we think, well, Joseph's the obvious one to pick. If, any, if this line is going to follow through, if, if performance matters, if how you live matters and what you do matters, he's great. So God's obviously going to pick him because look at his faithfulness. Look how he behaves. Look at all the stuff that he does. What an outstanding guy. And yet God doesn't pick him. He picks Judah, who's a stinking mess. Why? Because it's never been about your performance. It's always been about God's. It's never been about what you do and how amazing you are and how altogether you are and how fantastic you are, how upright and moral and everything you are. It's always been about who God is. This is a story of God's grace. Nothing more, nothing less. And the implications of it are stunning for you and for me. You see, it's not just Judah who's messed up in this story. His whole family line is, just like us. Even Judah's mother, this is why I mentioned her a moment ago, even Judah's mother, Leah, his dad, Jacob, doesn't even love her particularly. Rachel is his favorite wife. Just think through that. See, of the two sisters, Rachel, in Genesis 29, is described as beautiful in form and appearance. Rachel's stunning, Rachel is, is attractive. Rachel is stunningly beautiful. And about Leah, it just says she has weak eyes. <laughs> oh, Rachel. Whoa. Weak eyes. I, like, that's not even trying to work very hard to make a point. She's not loved. Genesis 29, 31 says, The Lord saw that she was hated of Leah, that she was hated in the eyes of the world. And yet God favored Leah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It's actually an incredibly beautiful story. It's an incredibly moving story, how God weaves together these things. He makes beautiful things out of mess. He takes that which the world despises He takes those which the world looks at and says, who do you think you are? I mean, at best, you've got weak eyes. Like, there's nothing to you. Who on earth? You you are nothing to look at. There is nothing really worthy of you at all. And he takes those and he says, I love you. I favor you. 
We invest like the royal we. We invest so much time and effort and energy into looking for favor in the eyes of the world. However that manifests itself for you, looking for for someone or something to make us feel beautiful, someone or something to make us feel loved, accepted, affirmed. We invest so much time and energy. Girls, you spend so much time making yourself look beautiful. Some boys do as well, fair enough. But whatever it is, we spend so much of our energy and our effort and our time looking for affirmation, favor, love, acceptance, identity, When all the time God is standing there shouting in Christ, I favor you, I love you, I affirm you, I am delighted in you. Stop looking for everything out there and recognize that in Christ, in God, you already have the acceptance that your heart craves. You already have the favor your heart craves. Your physical appearance does not define you. Your your worth is not determined by what the world says. Leah ain't beautiful. She is not the beautiful, attractive one. She's not loved from an earthly perspective, but the Lord looked on her and loved her and chose her. See, God takes that which the world discards and makes it into something beautifully new. God uses broken people. His plans, we see this throughout this story, his plans are bigger than your mistakes. Your family line, your family past, your family history, the mess that people did to you, or whatever it was, it does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your mistakes do not define you. The things you've done or the things done to you do not define you. Mistakes, they just, listen, please hear this. They do not define you because God takes messed up, broken things and he changes them from the inside out. We see that here in this story with Judah. He gets changed from the inside out because this is not the last time we see Judah in Genesis 38. Towards the end of Genesis, there's this amazing moment where Judah and all these other brothers are standing before the new prime minister of Egypt. And you know the story. In Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers, they sell their younger brother Joseph into slavery. He's been winding them up with dreams and visions and uh, all that kind of stuff. And they're just, I'm fed up of you. Let's kill him. They said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery. They get rid of him and their father, Jacob, is devastated. You fast forward the story and Joseph has now become the prime minister, the prince of Egypt and God's elevated him to be in charge over the nation. And Judah stands there with his brothers in front of Joseph but they don't recognize him. Just imagine that for a moment. Imagine what it is to be Joseph in that moment. Joseph's looking at them and deep in his heart he's wrestling with what to do with them. He now controls their fate in his hands. He's wondering whether they're still the incredibly hard-hearted evil folk that they once were. Just re- rewind the story for a moment. There'd been a family, a fa- sorry, a famine in the, in the land and the brothers have to go to Egypt to get the food. And they decide to leave their youngest Benjamin behind because since Joseph's death, Jacob loves Benjamin the most and he cannot bear to see him go in the same way. He can't leave him from his sight. If, he, if, I, if I lose Benjamin, that's it. My life's over. I'm devastated. So the brothers visit Egypt without him. But when they get there, first time around Joseph, he says, is this all your brothers? Knowing full well it's not. And they say, no, we've left our youngest at home. And he says, okay, I think you're spies. Prove to me you're not. Bring your youngest so they go home and say, Dad, we've got an issue. The only way to get food 
is to bring our youngest. And Jacob refuses to let him go. I can't do it. No way I can let him do it. And what does Judah do? Judah steps in and he says, I'll be a pledge for Benjamin. I promise I will bring him back to you. I will pledge for his safety. I will step in and look after him. Be it on my head if I return without him. This is Judah, stinking mess of a man. A few chapters later, I'll be a pledge. I will step in. So they take Benjamin to stand before the prime minister of Egypt. And there Joseph with the cups and all that kind of stuff says, I'm going to keep him as my slave and my servant. Thank you very much. You lot, sling your hook. Go back to your dad and say, yep, you can have food, but I'm keeping the youngest. You can see the problem we've got right now. We can't. I can't go back to my father without the youngest. He will die. It will kill him. If they lose Benjamin, that's it. It's all over. He just won't be able to cope with the mess. What does Judah do? Judah, who's already stood in as a pledge, he looks at Joseph and he says, take me instead. He stands there and he says, let me be the slave. I'll give up my whole life. I'll give up all of my freedom for Benjamin's sake and for my father's sake. Judah literally substitutes himself for his younger brother. It's incredibly moving. Just imagine the scene. I will step in. Let me say, what a powerful story. The cycle of mess and junk in this whole family is broken in that moment with an act of substitution. Judah says, Joseph, King, sir, you are right. He should be your slave. He should remain in captivity. He deserves it, but I promised to be his pledge. And so I will be his substitute. So please take me instead of him. Let him go free because I don't want to go back to my father without him. The broken Fallen guy substitutes himself for his younger brother. Where else have we read that story before? See, this is why we read these stories theologically, not morally, because the great, 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 great grandfather does what the great, 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 great grandson will ultimately do. He steps in and he makes himself a substitute. His pledge is, yes, you should be the slave, but let me. I will give up my whole life for the sake of yours because I don't want to go back to my father without you. So I will exchange my life. I will substitute my life. I will lay down my life so that you might be free. See, on that cross, as Jesus bled and died, he became that substitute for us. He stepped in and he pledged himself and he took the punishment that we might be free. You see, Judah really ultimately is just a foreshadow of a greater Judah who is to come. Back to Genesis 38 for a moment. You see, even in the mess of this whole situation, Judah, Tamar, the whole mess of the story, we see a miniature version of this much bigger story being played out just in this. See, Tamar has no life at all. She's not got what it says. It's all terrible, but she gets her life back when Judah looks on her in verse 26 and says, in spite of all your sin, she is righteous. Tamar gets her life back because Judah covers it. Her life was ultimately saved because he stepped in and he covered it. And in this miniature version here, we see Judah pointing again to this much ultimate, this bigger story, this ultimate Judah. In this mini story here in Genesis 38, we see this much bigger story being played out. In the whole of Genesis, we see this much bigger story being played out in the whole of Scripture. Judah steps in and rescues her ultimately. Judah, in the bigger story of Genesis, steps in and rescues his younger brother. And we need to see in this context of this much bigger story and recognize that the ultimate Judah has Jesus 
has stepped in for us and covered us despite our sin. He paid for it, and that now means that real change is actually possible in our lives. You see, Judah changed. In this story, he changed. He went from sex-fueled hypocrite, out for vengeance, looking out only for himself, to a man who sacrificed himself for the sake of others. Real change, brothers and sisters, is possible. And this real change comes when we're awoken to and we're broken by our sin. And we do what the Bible calls repent. When we recognize, I have messed up. I have made a mistake. I have sinned. And now I choose to confess it and turn 180 degrees away from it and walk away. See, Judah is a picture, he's a foreshadow of Jesus, but Judah in this story, he's also, a, just like you and me, a broken man marred by sin, who needs to be awoken to his sinfulness, who needs to be awoken to his brokenness before change can come, just like we do. You see, Judah is caught up in his own sin and he tries to deny it and he tries to run from it and he, and he tries to blame other people for it. He doesn't, first thing he does is he doesn't even want to admit that his life's a mess. He's got two dead sons and things are not going well. And we see in the second half of verse 11 that he tries to blame Tamar for it. He won't give Tamar what she deserves, the third son as a husband, because it think, he thinks it's her fault that he's in this situation. I gave you son one, he died. Son two, he died. No way I'm giving you son three. It's your fault. How often do we do that? How often do we do that? We look to blame other people for our mess, for our situation. We do it all the time. He's also a man who's caught up in his own hypocrisy. He's ignoring his own sin and he's blaming Tamar for hers. He wants her to be burnt. I mean, this is incredibly hateful. And the reason it's like that, he needs to believe bad things about her. In order to somehow cleanse his own soul, he needs to believe that it's all her fault, that really it's on her. And if he's blameless or if he's not, it's not really his fault, it's all someone else's. And again, how often do we do that? Our hearts need to justify themselves. They, they shift blame. They try and shield, we try and shield our hearts from the reality of the fact that it's our own sin that's gotten us into this mess. And we oftentimes do everything we can to justify ourselves, just put the blame somewhere else. But to change, to truly change, there needs to come a moment when we are woken to our own sin, our own guilt, our own mess, and own it. And this is what repentance is. Repentance is a recognition of the condition of our own heart. Not looking to blame, not looking to justify, but owning our own guilt and our own sin before a holy God. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not gonna lie to you, sometimes that is, coming to that place is very painful. And sometimes it's publicly painful. It was for Judah. There's no evidence that anything in his heart is going to shift. There's no evidence that any change is going to come about until he's publicly humiliated and his sin is laid bare for all to see. And when Tamar confronts him with the reality of his sin, it's not comfortable. It's not nice. But it was entirely necessary to cause Judah to turn from what he was into what he had become. See, Judah needed this incredibly painful process of being awoken to his sin so that he could eventually become the vehicle for Jesus to come into the world so that you and I can also be changed. 
You see, repentance is a key to that change. We can try all sorts of other methods to resolve our problems, do this, sort that out, change this, change that, move that, do that. But ultimately, by doing that, we're just playing around the edges. You see, repentance changes our hearts, and it's only when our hearts are changed that everything else can change. You can try and modify your behavior, but it's not going to work unless at root, your heart is transformed. And out of your heart, then everything else flows. A few years ago, me and Ham were not doing so well. I endeavor to always be honest with you. And we were in a place where we'd tried lots of things. To be honest, it was no major big thing. It's just, you know what it's like. Annoy one another and then annoy one another and annoy one another and you heap annoyance on annoyance and all the rest of it. And uh, I'll just be honest, she was doing my head in. (laughs) The feeling was mutual, so it's okay. (laughs) And we tried a whole load of stuff. Well, if I just do this, I'll cut back the number of hours and I'll do this and we'll sort out our diary and we'll plan around this. And and we need to have more fun. That's the issue. We need to have more fun. Everything's too serious. And we need to have more more space, less people, more space, all that kind of stuff. And we tried lots of things. I'll be better. I'll do this. I promise I'll do that. In the end, we were out bowling, which was one of the things we tried to do. I hate bowling. (laughs) But we needed to have more fun, so hand organized bowling. (laughs) But I knew. The problem was not in hand. I mean, it might have been. But my problem was not her. My problem was me. And my problem was my heart. Because I could try everything else around the edges to sort this out and sort that out, but I knew that fundamentally the wrong was in my heart with a bad attitude, and everything else flowed from that. And the Bible tells us in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. We can con ourselves, we can try, we can tip. The heart is deceitful above all things. It also tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I knew the problem was in my heart. And we're out bowling and I'm, I'm, I had a moment, I was like, the only thing that changes this marriage is if I own my own sin and I repent. Not I'm sorry I've done this and I'm sorry I've done that and I'm sorry I talked harshly to you and I'm sorry that... You annoyed me and I responded badly in that. And I'm sorry. You know those kind of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A genuine before God, before anything else, I've committed wrong and I repent. See, the heart, I did that, by the way. The bowling lane, she was like, strike. It's on the, it's going on today. She's like, do you want another drink? I was like, no, I don't actually. I need to talk to you. I want to ask for forgiveness right now. I repent of the attitude that's been in my heart because I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. It was just an attitude thing. From that moment, everything changes and everything changed because we weren't playing around the edges. We were dealing with the heart of the issue. See, I've made a practice of repenting since. My marriage after 12 years is better than it's ever been before. And it ain't because I've got better. I'll be honest, I've probably got worse. (laughs) I was quite fun to hang out with 12 years ago. (laughs) But it's got better because at root, there's been a, a work that's done in my heart that flows out from everything else. Brothers and sisters, that's what repentance is and does. And the story of Judah is a story of grace because it shows us that no matter how broken, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how 
everything is, change is always possible. You see, our story ultimately is a story of grace and we can be confident that things will change and we will change because if you're a Christian, your life is now hidden in Christ and we know the end of the story that no matter how messed up you are, no matter how dark things get, no matter how down, crushed, defeated, no how much you think, I just cannot beat this sin. It just keep coming back to it. It's got hold of me forever. No, 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 no. We know that our ultimate destination is not down but up because our lives are hidden in Christ and He did not stay in the grave but He rose to new life in Christ and because our lives are hidden in Him so will we one day that's our eternal destiny everything changes because our lives are hidden in Christ and repentance is key to the journey the only way out of captivity that we live in the only way out of being enslaved by sin and trapped with guilt and all that the only way out is repentance of the heart No, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do better, I promise. No, it's repentance of the heart because there is a way out because God always makes a way out. And so listen, today, if you're trapped in a cycle of things, here's what I'm gonna say to you. Get out of it. Then there's a way. It's called repentance. Deal with your sin. Don't live in the junk, live in the freedom. Don't live in the mess, live in the joy. Don't live in the, live in the, whoa, the no condemnation of Jesus Christ. God is extremely serious about his promise to redeem his children. No matter how wayward they get, this is the scandal of grace. He wants a relationship with us. He does not want you to sit there wallowing in self-pity and guilt and feelings of shame. He wants you to walk in absolute freedom and confidence and joy of knowing past sin dealt with, present sin dealt with, future sin. He's got that covered too. The thing is, if you're in Christ, you should not be marked by, but marked by, wow, because he has changed me from the inside out. And so now I'm free to confess my sin publicly without any sense of fear or shame. Because frankly, I don't care what you think because I only care what he thinks and he's already said I've forgotten it what are you talking about that changes everything that changes everything can the band come back because we're going to sing in a moment God deliberately chooses the family of Judah to bring forth Jesus he deliberately picks Perez he deliberately picks the illegitimate son of an illicit affair between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law dressed as a prostitute to ultimately bring forth the family line of Jesus. No matter how much mess you sit in today, you ain't got a patch on these guys. And even if you have, even if you have, even if you are sitting there today as the illicit son of an illegitimate affair between a father-in-law and a mother-in-law who's dressed as a daughter-in-law dressed as a prostitute, if that's your story, wow, look at the way out. Look at the joy that comes. Look at the freedom that comes. God deliberately gets his hands dirty by molding the mess of a stinking man like Judah into a conduit of God's grace because he is in the business of sorting out messy lives. Does it mean that we can just do what we want? No, by no means. Where grace abounds, we don't just carry on sinning. By no means, we put it to death. Does it mean that we can come to Christ Jesus by anything other than faith? No, by absolutely no means. But it does mean that no mess, no failure, no illicit affair, no broken relationships, no sordid fling with a prostitute can prevent God from using you because you are made in the image of Christ and he is molding you together into his masterpiece. Are you frail? Yes. Are you flawed? Absolutely. But are you forever loved? Definitely yes. Grace pursues. Grace transforms. And it molds broken things into beautiful things.